Welcome to the Superposition podcast and happy National Women's Day. This episode, we sat down with Professor Knox Makunga, botanist at Stellenbosch University, and Asma Omer, a student of applied mathematics also at Stellenbosch University, to talk science, the journey of us as women in science, and how we can bring others on the journey with us. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to our second episode of the Superposition podcast. And we are here joined by Professor Knox Makunga and Asma Omar, and we want to welcome you into our homes. We're just going to be having a conversation talking about plants, science, and the feminine divine. Um, Prof Knox, please can you introduce yourself and tell us your favourite plant? Um, well, as we've already heard, I'm Knox Makonga, and I am actually a botanist that focuses work on medicinal plants. And I don't have any favorites because my mind keeps changing. I am Asma Omar, and I'm a research student at uh, Istanbul University. And I'm working in mathematical modeling, and I'm uh, working on ecology. So it's like somehow a bit related to plants. And um, my favorite plant, actually, I do like all the plants. So they are, they are all my favorite. So I can't just say one of them. I was trying to think of the same answer for myself and I realized low maintenance plants would have to be my favorite because I have a little bit of a history with somehow not not keeping them alive. Mm. Succulents, good option. Yeah. yeah, and there's so many, right? So many varieties. Well, absolutely. I mean, South Africa's uh, one of the biodiversity hot hotspots actually for succulent diversity and for succulents right you can also just trim like graft off a little bit of the actual plant and then mm-hmm. grow right yeah. they'll make a root and then once they've set a root then they'll off, off they go so yeah they're good and also i just want to say that uh, sudan is like really in a hot place i'm from sudan and then like you know we have a lot of plant that adapt with a little bit of caring and watering and whatever so you can use my advice somehow mm. So I wanted to ask you, like, as a scientist who is studying plants, what is your relationship then with plants and with flora, especially as you're going through South Africa? There's so much always to be seen. What kind of relationship do you have with the with the plants? Well, I love plants. I mean, they're really interesting because, you know, they're stuck in one place. And so they <laughs> honestly have to adapt to their unique microenvironments. And they're always being bombarded by so many things. So changing climates, there may be predators, um, temperatures may be high, all kinds of things are actually happening. And so I'm always fascinated by how they can easily adapt and Mm. change to these continuously changing environments. And very unique adaptations, you know, Sometimes they make thorns to protect themselves, so that's a physical protection. But other times they actually make chemicals to be able to protect themselves from the same situation. So they make may make thorns to physically protect themselves from predators, or else they may make chemicals to physically protect themselves from predators. So I think my relationship is always not looking at just how beautiful they are, but just trying to understand all the sort of intricate biochemical and biophysical things that are actually happening Mm. internally 
that really fascinates me. That kind of adaption, when I, when I hear you speaking about it, it sounds like evolution, like this evolutionary process of a plant. Yeah. What kind of time scale is that, you know, if now I'm a plant, I'm going to grow thorns. Is that something you would see like over five years of Cape Town drought or is it? Millions and millions okay. of years for evolution. You know, I mean, this is a very long time scale, but at the same time, they are phenotypically plastic. So what does that really mean? That means that they're actually able to make changes to their chemistry, to their phenology at this moment. Mm. Um, so, for instance, there is a big drought, then they will adjust, um, you know, they perceive the stress first, and then they'll actually adjust to mm. try and alleviate the stress. And if the stress is too much, then sometimes it might be fatal. Has that been the case for some of the species in the Western Cape? Well, I mean, I would say probably yes, yeah. Or even for particular populations, it might end up being like that. Populations that have got very unique niche requirements, requirements. for their growth, yeah. yeah. And that brings in the ecology, right? Yeah, and actually that's what is my uh, modeling is about. But it's a bit different from what you just said. But I'm working in a stochastic uh, population dynamics mm -hmm. and how that stochasticity affects the life of any population, either plant or animals. Yeah. And so, yeah. So we just, those conditions, like the environmental condition, the demographic condition, mm -hmm. how help those populations to adapt, to survive and live. Uh -huh. I wonder if we can say that the plants are better at adapting than the humans, like in this Cape Town drought, for example, you know, who is able to then adapt to the situation more readily? Well, the boss itself is meant to be able to handle long periods of drought mm. as well as, you know, water availability. So I think if, if the droughts are go continuously going on, for very long periods, the landscape of the plants that we see will ultimately change. Yeah. Um, but um, but on the other hand, you know, they are hardy. I mean, you know, they can handle fires, they can handle mm. um, drought, they can handle all kinds of 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 situations. It really amazes me, like, even I was driving Hans Bay, I think it's probably two hours out, and just how green it gets so quickly when you leave just a little bit outside of Cape Town. It always surprises me, first of yeah. all. I'm like, oh, where am I now? Where yeah, now? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I love green, and I was actually, what you just said, or you talked about plant, you, I see you are so passionate, and just um, I'm wondering how you just find yourself actually looking for plan and studying them like did you decide it from when you are at high school or like when you just oh um the irony is that my dad was a botanist even you know i tried to not follow in the same path as he did but i've come from a family that's always been plant aware i think one you know some of my first words in english were probably related to plants <laughs> You know, flowers, roses, you know, when I was still learning English. And my mom's always been an avid gardener. I've always been in an environment where plants plants are important. Mm. Um, and even, you know, when my gran 
um, it was part of our yearly cycle to be involved in planting maize and canning peaches because obviously plants are very important sources of food mm. so yeah i come from an environment where i've grown to appreciate plants and how they contribute to actually our daily existence mm. um, because of a family that was aware of plants um, i think people though generally are not plant aware most people are actually plant blind there's a certain level of plant blindness in our society and a undervalue of plants um, where people don't even realize that the air that they breathe is there because of photosynthesis yeah that's yeah. crazy that <laughs> is from the plants i mean never mind about that's really wild if you dissect your meal and you try and recognize how many species of plants are in a meal you know if you actually have to just dissect how many different how much plant diversity is there in one meal it's incredible so how do your lunch lunch times go i'm just wondering how long it takes you to figure out which to figure out well actually you know um there was actually a paper written a few years ago about what actually goes into a mcdonald's burger Mm. you know the diversity of like a big mac meal um of all the different plants that are actually there this is a very interesting study but it's a lot i mean if you think even say a lunchtime you might have a salad the lettuce the tomato the cucumbers, these are all things that belong to different families, mm. right? The peppers, all different families. Um, and maybe you decide, I'm going to have a little bit of starch. Maybe that's a little bit of rice or it might be potato. Again, totally different families. So we are always eating a wide range of plant diversity that actually contributes yeah. um, to a meal such a funny perspective to have whilst you're (laughs) but this like you know bring another question and like to to my mind which is um people they used to uh about um deforestation Uh so like you know we use yeah plant as a food but still we need the space to plant those Mm. plants are we being responsible yeah so in terms of agriculture Mm -hmm. um well that's a very interesting question i think the way in which we live is not always environmentally safe. I mean, agriculture, obviously, on a large commercial scale, is important to drive economies. You know, we in the Western Cape, where we have a very large economy that supplies jobs to a lot of people, that's the wine industry, but those vineyards actually sit on areas that used to be Feinbos. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always this push and pull in terms of of the trying to balance the, the economies of scale, I suppose, with sustainability. Yeah. Um, so, like, with that, what is your take on genetically modified foods? Well, I mean, I actually am trained as a plant molecular biologist, so I actually do some gene jocking and gene right. modification. Right. Um, so I don't necessarily have... In opposition to it, um, I think there's a place for all kinds of different technologies, to be honest. And from my research, 
I actually use genetic modification as a means to alter secondary metabolism. And so if we can make these modifications, it actually provides you with a platform to be able to alter the specialized metabolism and gain a deeper understanding of how it, it works. So we use this as a scientific tool to try and um, unravel um, the function and the regulation of secondary or specialized metabolism. Okay, what is, what is secondary metabolism? <laughs> so primary metabolism, this, these are actually quite old terms now, but primary metabolism is regarded as basic metabolism such as photosynthesis. Okay. So the conversion of light energy to biochemical energy, that's photosynthesis. Okay. And I think most people have some idea of what that is. But that photosynthesis ultimately yields metabolites or chemicals which are then processed in more sophisticated or in other sophisticated biochemistry or biochemical pathways. Mm -hmm. And these metabolites yield metabolites that are not essential for growth and development, but that, that allow the plant to be able to survive in diverse environments mm. and compete within diverse environments. Mm. So these are not necessary for primary growth, um, but they do allow for plants to be able to interact with their environments. So when you do the modification, it's like triggering that metabolism. Those pathways. Because usually it's it's something that won't be triggered unless the plant is like under some kind of stress or has yeah, to... Yeah, absolutely. Often it's stress conditions or metabolites will accumulate to a particular tissue type or under specific environmental conditions, etc. Mm. What metabolites are you working on right now? Oh, I work on a few interesting ones such as mesembrine alkaloids which are in a succulent plant called skeletium. Mm -hmm. And these metabolites in animal systems are providing neuropsychiatric and neuropsychological effects. Mm. So they're pretty interesting. So for me, I want just to take you a little bit back. So I want to know some somehow about your background. Uh -huh. So like for me, it's just uh, really interesting to find a black scientist woman mm -hmm. and I just want to know which in, in which circumstances you grow. Um, so I mentioned it, that my dad used to be a botanist and um, so I suppose this triggered an interest in science and I've always been fascinated by how the world works. You know, how do how do biochemistry has always kind of been a passion of mine. I've always been interested in how do things actually function and how could we exploit this function? And I suppose that's what led me to become a scientist. I think all of us are quite curious about our world, mm. right? And, you know, even at school, I was quite interested in trying to understand how things work. And this really honestly has kept me fascinated about life mm. as a whole. And I presume those passions are amongst all of us that, yeah. that curiosity yeah, right sure. yeah so that's been a main driver for me i'm not sure about you ladies here what turned you on to science mm. so for me i was just always trying to you know um it's a bit different than you uh -huh. because in in my community 
we have that girls like you know they don't usually talk you mm-hmm. know you have just to keep silent and if it does come to you know go and study mm-hmm. you have to ask for like permission for anything and everything mm-hmm. that you want to do so for me i just find myself i just want to go out i want to see what's happening exactly and like why people like i don't know i see in tvs and in like you know um uh, in the news uh-huh. about people they do such stuff for me is even i can't imagine it it's not just my small community that is there where mm-hmm. we just keep our girls in you know in secret space where uh-huh. you don't allowed to go anywhere so i have to fight and find my way and suddenly i just find myself as like you know working in science well that's really interesting because they say about 30% of all scientists are actually females globally that's a that's a global statistic and we were actually talking about this um yesterday with um other female scientists in saying that this is women's month here in South Africa and particularly talking about on the African context um you know limitations to uh educating girls and career choices talking about how for instance motherhood can lead to what is known as this leaky mm. pipeline in mm. terms of of female researchers and um comparing as well South Africa to other parts mm. of Africa in terms of the value of women in within the scientific uh, community so we had a pretty interesting uh, conversation about this and you know you've mentioned that um you breaking boundaries by actually doing this mm. and i think it takes a lot of guts you know you paving the way actually for a whole bunch of other of other ladies out there yeah. i mean it's not an easy route because you could become ostracized within your community i i had a very interesting conversation with a a fellow collaborator of mine who happens to be chinese and she said to me that um her parents were very worried about her not finding somebody to to marry mm. because at wow. the age of 30 mm. you are regarded as a leftover mm. you know um so there are still many barriers in terms of gender stereotypes that we that we have to deal with as female scientists sure. and researchers And you speak now about paving the way and like that's one thing which Asma like has definitely has that strength within her to be that woman who is willing to say hey look like you can do this this is possible Yeah and also sometimes I'm think is something related to your personality and how you just grow like you know in your small family mm-hmm. and how much space actually they give it's you know given to you to talk about yourself and uh-huh. to give your opinion So in that case you know you will just there is something that will grow and then led you to challenge yourself and also to just you know decide for yourself what you want to do and not just let others decide for you and mm. I'm saying by others in Sudan men so like you know uh-huh mm. and it's mostly it's just related to men and family uh-huh so if you want to take any step first you have to check 
in your family and the men in your infa- your families. <laughs> imagine I could never, hey, my brother trying to tell me what I must. Like, so you I grow differently. So even now here, because yeah. I'm growing that world. If I want to do anything, I must call like my mother or someone in my family that like you know mm. I want to do that, mm-hmm. and not just to like you know to take permission, but you know in case of just letting them know that I'm going to do that. Mm. Yeah, I like the second one more, letting them know that I'm going to do it <laughs> rather than asking for permission. Being yeah. dictated to about choices. I mean, I think this is one thing that my family was quite. Um, open-minded was allowing this as the space to follow whatever mm. passions and aspirations that we really mm. were keen for I think my it's mom really would powerful. have liked to have had me do medicine because at some stage she used to be a nurse but mm. in the end she actually realized that she needed to just let that idea be I think after I got my PhD she was like okay it's she's a good. doctor anyway so it's fine <laughs> <laughs> So in terms of yeah, in terms of paving the way, like how do you, how do you take on this? It's almost within the you know black female South African scientists. There's almost this like onus and responsibility now to speak to young female scientists that may be interested in a similar similar avenue to you. And I can only imagine that it's that's like a lot. You know, it's a lot to take a lot to take and a lot to take on for individuals that do occupy that space mm-hmm. in the academic world and the scientific world. So how do you like handle that and the engagement that you have with your students and the, the students around you? Well, I mean, I try and just be who I am, you know, just be me. I'm just <laughs> Knox. And, um, and I think just the fact that I happen to be a black female scientist that works at Stellenbosch University, which is regarded as a white Afrikaans environment, in itself really speaks volumes. People really want to see people that look the look like themselves 100%. in spaces 100%. that are not necessarily historically. Um, um, ascribed or historically placed within their communities. Well, yeah, for sure. Um, and I just try and be as natural and as you know, and go about my business in the in the best possible way that I can. Mm. And hopefully that in itself will be inspiration for other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do engage in a lot of science communication and I do a lot of public public talks as well as I write articles that are not necessarily within you know the rigor of you know academic academic journals Mm. um, because I think we need to be seen we need to be heard Mm. um, our stories need to be told and mm. everybody has a story 100. I mean even you I mean everybody has a story mm. and I think those stories really um, assist in inspiring other people and actually realizing gee man I I can do that or I could do whatever mm. I thought I wouldn't be able to do and not limit myself um, so yeah yeah, I'm just thinking back to my undergraduate experience and just the presence 
of like just the presence of a non-white female would have been a blessing it yeah. really just to see somebody that looked like me occupying that space but it just wasn't I mean, present iris- even irrespective of of color just having somebody that happens to be female yeah i mean that in itself is is inspirational um i think the appointment of prof khitisatati at as the vice chancellor duct this has been big news mm. you know um and she's incredible and really inspiring mm. and she's you know continues to do research she's in administration she's on social media and yeah. she's occupying all of these different spaces um and and it is inspiring and for me it's wonderful to see people in those roles because i think hey you know perhaps i could occupy that particular space yeah, sure. if that's part of my um aspirations yeah for sure yeah it's yeah i feel like as well in south africa which i'm sure is very different to sudan like where i am in my academic career i feel very supported like i feel as though you know there's a lot of support at the moment mm-hmm. within the scientific world yeah. so okay cool like you're interested in this go and do it yeah i mean i i think that status quo is not necessarily going to you know, prevail um so take these opportunities mm-hmm. whilst they are there mm-hmm. i think often people fail to see opportunities that are actually in front of them mm. um and if there's a low hanging fruit grab it you know go for it um and there is a lot of support um currently actually for um female researchers and female scientists and females in stem technology mm. engineering and mathematics and what i think is interesting is that the national research foundation has actually been plowing a lot of m- money to encourage um female scientists and there's actually parity in terms of people that are doing phd's and masters degrees um in the biological sciences what's interesting for me even though the scholarships and the funding is available when it comes to the physical sciences particularly areas such as engineering mm. and computer sciences mm. there are fewer white females taking on those um scholarships and bursaries than any other demographic group. Mm. So what, you know, really what does that mean? And how did this come to like I met a colleague of mine I did an internship recently. Right? Yeah. She was young white female and from high school she had been taught like coding. And I was like, what at high school like that's wonderful, really, isn't it great? Yeah, it's fantastic. And so I'm wondering also how do you even start start these things when people are so young you know because coding is something which you don't necessarily get exposed to until you need to use it for something Well yeah I mean I I think you encourage um young girls to realize that this is not just for boys mm. because I think we we gender stereotype right from the beginning Yeah um you know lego sets they won't be in the girls aisle of toys 
They'll be in the boys' aisle yeah. for yeah. toys. Um, and so, and these are small things, you know. Female Lego, um, Legos that actually happen to be in STEM jobs. You know, this is a, it's a new thing. It's like in the last five years that you actually have pieces that are designed mm. to engage girls. Mm. Um, so we channel, you know, our children right from the onset. Yeah. So funny now I'm thinking for me growing up, I never quite had that, that environment. It was mm-hmm. all very fluid. You know, there was lots of wonderful, us, very wonderful, honestly, like lots of climbing trees and running and all of that kind of stuff. Like I'm helping my grandfather try and fix the car. Like, well, absolutely. And mm. that teaches you to think in a slightly different way yeah and so now I think like growing up one of the things that I struggled with this year so I I even had to ask like um a mentor that I have and he's male and I just felt like from what I was seeing Mm -hmm. like I just didn't have the power within me to perform to the extent that the men were performing around me and I was just like okay is this like is this true or is this what other people see so I had to ask him like hey you know like in your position like what do you see in terms of uh, the female output and the male output um he gave a very political answer but just that feeling in me that actually perhaps like perhaps i can't do this as well as the man can it was Mm. pretty crazy yeah and i mean i think um those moments of self-doubt i think women probably reflect much more and more possibly more deeply than 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 males do guys are like i can do this you know Mm. even if they can't do it Mm. they psychologically tell themselves it is possible Mm. you know they even say that when uh, females negotiate a salary they won't go outright and say hey this is what I need to be paid. Mm. Um, they kind of think, oh, jeepers, you're giving me a job. Thank you so much. Um, so our interactions sometimes actually um, sort of hinder us. Um, you know, I'm sure you can do it. So it's just a matter of going out there and yeah. getting, getting onto it and doing it. Um, I mean, for yourself, through your, through your scientific path, did you find the balance of how you would then, like, you know, keeping this self-doubt in a place where it can sit, like, humbly, rather than it, you know, taking centre stage, did you find your, it changing as you continued your scientific journey? Well, I mean, I think you become more confident about certain things. You know, when I started, I was not that confident to be able to supervise and graduate a PhD student. But, you know, you you know you, you learn the skills to be able to manage other people. Mm. You also understand how to interact with different students, for instance. So these are all experiences that actually grow you and build you as a person. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes you have to adjust, you know, as you, as you go along. Mm. Um, so you have to be flexible as well. Mm. And also give yourself the space of, okay, I'm feeling a little bit inferior about this particular thing. But look through and just think about the things that you should be Mm. feeling 
good about. Mm. I think often we don't count the things that really should be making us feel good. Yeah, sure. And that small thing that makes you feel bad about yourself um, overwhelms everything else mm. and clouds everything else that's actually positive. Mm. I'm also now wondering, like, on the flip side of that, if this, if this like, self-criticism can also then be a strength in mm-hmm. the spaces. I think so. Because yeah. you're trying to find the weak point, like, you know, in yourself, and then you will find a way of getting better or mm. solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Mm. A little bit of self-diagnosis, um, you know, sometimes alleviates the symptoms. Yeah, and staying humble as well. I'm just thinking about um, the community in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I'm working as a mentor in high school, uh, Kaimandi High School, uh-huh. and it's a black area, as you know. So I'm just wondering, because the students, they didn't now see which opportunity that, like, you know, in front of their eyes. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious about know is that related to the schools or to their families or to the community or like why i think it's everything those answers are not simple it's very complex mm. it is all of those things are interlinked mm. so last year at the national science week mm. um what was interesting for me when i asked the the young learners that were there, um, if they knew anybody that was a scientist. I think there were two people that that put up their hand out of a group of maybe 80 to 100 kids. Mm. Um, And that just said to me that... There's um, a lack of information. It's a lack of information. It's a lack of role models in the community Mm. um and the people that this those even those two students said were scientists actually happened to be you know the one said my uncle's a medical doctor obviously that person did science but that's not somebody that's necessarily engaging in a research line yeah in terms of science Mm. and they probably own their own practice and etc um so and i actually went okay let's make that one student perhaps um so they met a scientist for the first time last year or they met a whole bunch of scientists actually for the first time last year um and um and Often in, in certain communities, science is just not necessarily a career path. Mm. You don't know what is a scientist. Mm. What is it they do? Mm. Um, how do they get money? You know, how do you live? What kind of job that is? And, and as, as I said, it's a whole integrated social, economic, political, very complex issue. Mm. So for me, I just want to say that those students, they have like potential to do like huge amount of work or like, you know, in science or in any path. Uh-huh. And they need that, you know, a little bit of pushing. And they need, I mean, like people like you 
to go and visit them and see like you know well thanks for saying that but there also need people like you who actually go into those communities and see and and actually and uncover this potential i mean i try to do that and yeah. from whole bunch of school yeah. i get five students who just like you know really interested in doing well you know what for me anybody that you can engage you've done exactly mm. what you went mm-hmm. there to do mm-hmm. yeah. so last year there was one i mean i you know i spoke for 35 minutes and at this national science week uh, when i after I gave my talk there was one guy and i you know he asked me out of all the students that were there the one question which was most relevant based on what i actually spoke about okay oh, and even though it was one person out of say 100 i was like i managed to reach at least one person mm-hmm. so hopefully my 35 minutes mm. made a difference yeah and um and gave a new world perspective mm. to that one person that was more satisfying than probably the classes that I'd been teaching, you know, on on campus. Because hopefully that young person will go and realize, you know, my world is more than just the shacks that are actually in front of me every time I wake up. Um that there is a bigger world out there mm. and there are opportunities for me and I can go out there and get them. Mm. So even if it's just one person, I think it makes a difference and it's it was really it well, satisfying yeah. for me from a psychological and emotional level mm. i left there feeling good about myself actually and that also like you know it will be like a cycle so you manage to make difference in one person but that one person also i'm sure he will you know manage to do his own difference yep like in in, in his own time mm. it's like planting a seed you know we started yeah. off this conversation <laughs> about plants yeah and now we back <laughs> and to plants, plants make yeah. more seeds yeah. and yeah. so hopefully you know it will grow yeah. the community of um scientists and particularly yeah. um female scientist sometimes you feel like you just want to plant a whole forest <laughs> <laughs> this actually just um remind me about one of my student questions uh-huh. we were visiting to um Istanbul's uh, garden there is a plant called water lily uh-huh. and they have different flowers uh-huh. he asked me like why is same species but they have different flowers mm. Mm-hmm. different like, colors yeah different colors i mean uh-huh. yeah is the same flower but different color yeah i mean it's Um, is it related to adaptation policy? Well, I mean, I'm not sure about water lilies because I don't really work with them that closely, but um probably also to attract you know a variety of pollinators. I mean, I don't really know about their but um I mean this floral um morphisms are are really interesting. They're people who actually study these things. Okay. You know? Okay, so we started off with plants, so we're going to finish with plants. So we picked this up on the way over. Mm-hmm. Simply African indigenous herbs. Natural clean out, detox and antioxidant. Sure. And so we've got some ingredients here and we want you to help us tell us scientifically what is good about these ingredients. Oh my. <laughs> so we'll choose which ones. Okay. I'm going to try and pronounce them. blue blom sali blow blom sali blow blom sali i'm probably also saying it wrong but that's about as good as it, as it gets so this is actually a sage um a type of salvia salvias belong to a really really 
big group. And what's interesting about this particular species is that it's got aromatic specialized metabolites or secondary metabolites, mm-hmm. as well as um, metabolites that are not volatile. This is probably good for um, a variety of different things. You can use it for coughs and colds. You know, the aromatics have got chemicals such as mint and things like lemon, lemonine, lemony flavors. Some people even would cook with that blow bloom sali because, you know, like sage. It's like sage. It's like a sage. Mm. It belongs to the mm-hmm. same family. And so... Um, there are a lot of different herbs there. There are a lot. We don't have to go through all yep, of them. for sure. Do you want to choose another one that might be interesting? Um, so let's go with buhu because it's supposed to be a, a, a detox mix. Mm-hmm. Um, so buhu definitely has chemicals that are diuretics. Okay. So this will definitely pass through your, your kidneys. Um, and... It's probably one of the reasons it's actually included in that mix. So the blowblom sali, something that I didn't mention with the sages, is that it also has lots of antioxidants. And obviously antioxidants are good for us to balance out reactive oxygen species, which we all make. Um, so yeah, any other one that you want want me to? Wild dacha. Wild Dacha, Wilder Dacha, uh, Leonotus Leonorus. I like saying that one. Leonotus Leonorus. Leonotus Leonorus. And the reason it's given that name is because of the flowers um, that happen to be a sort of... Um, you can see that those are some of the floral plots that they included there. They the slight orange. Dirt, so this dirty orange or dusty orange. Um, and this looks like a lion's mane. And if you touch the flower, it's a little bit hairy, you know. Mm. So again, you know, that gives you that sort of Leo or lion thing. Um, Very fitting for you. Very (laughs) fitting for me. And um, Leonotus leonorus um, is an ornamental plant, so it's really pretty. Again, it has aromatics. It's also got a lot of um, phenolics and terpenoids, which are all chemicals um, that would have a variety of different bioactivities such as antimicrobial activity um, and antiviral activity um, full of antioxidants you can smoke Valdedacha the same as Dacha and and it's slightly uh, psychoactive I'm not encouraging anyone to do this but it is an ancient practice which you can also Which may in. or may not be beneficial for the individual. <laughs> it's never good to smoke. Get it at your local your local medicine man, I suppose. I'm going to yeah. try this out for the next seven days, and I'm going to let everybody know how I feel afterwards. Wonderful. Okay, thank you so much for joining us. It's been yeah, such a thanks pleasure. for the conversation. It's been really lovely and nice thank to meet you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Superposition. We hope that you enjoyed your time with us. You can connect with Prof Knox Makunga on Twitter at Knox the Lion, and some of her TED Talks related to medicinal plant species are available on YouTube. We'll put a link in the description. You can expect to see more of Asma as she joins our team. Big shout out to all the people that made this possible. Jeremy Bingham for hosting us, Faresa Mbepu for videography, and Wade, our sound engineer. And 
big shout out to everybody that continues to support Superposition. Thank you for listening. <laughs>